Be a wonderful thing to have open in front of you that uh, passage that Adelaide just brought to us, uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, page 1049, but of course you know your way to find uh, a passage now, you've been well versed. Um, as we turn there, not only do we need to have the Bible open, we need our hearts open, and so let's pray that God would be at work. Our Lord and Father, what a delight it is uh, to meet in your name, and to have you, the living God, present amongst us, speaking by your word and spirit. Uh, Father, we ask that you would speak now in such a way that it would reshape our loves, uh, reform us by your word, that we would be like your son, loving what he loves, hating what he hates. Father, we pray that you would speak to us words of both challenge and comfort, that it might bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pick up Jesus' words right at the end of that reading, verse 15. Jesus says this, God knows your hearts. Uh, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. As Jesus' words um, expose, he's saying, we lie exposed before him. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. He knows their hearts, he knows your heart. In fact, he knows it better than you know your own heart. Uh, now, of course, heart in his culture means more than your emotions. In, in our culture, we reduce it down to just emotions. It's more than that. Heart for him is you at your core. And that is God knows your heart. He knows what you value. He knows what you treasure. He knows what is, what is important to you. And at the same time as uh, being confronting and saying, he knows us perfectly, intimately, better than we know ourselves, um, as he speaks, what he's doing is revealing his own heart. You know, that we naturally value what God detests. Uh, what he's revealing is God's upside-down value system. And, and isn't it just what we celebrate? That's what Christmas is all about, that God has a completely different value system to us. Um, of course, for uh, some, Christmas just finished. Uh, you know, you, you'd know the first day of Christmas is the 25th of December, and therefore it goes, keep going, 12 days on, 6th of January, Epiphany, it all finishes, it's why my Serbian Orthodox next-door neighbour is doing Christmas this weekend and cashing in all the sales. Um, Christmas is God detesting our value system. Uh, Luther describes the incarnation's utter disregard for our heart's desire. He says it this way, it'll appear on the screen, but I'll read it. Um, when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised. No one noticed or was conscious of what God was doing in that stable. He lets the large houses and costly apartments remain empty, lets their inhabitants eat, drink and be merry, but this comfort and treasure are hidden from them. Oh, what a dark night this was for Bethlehem that was not conscious of that glorious light. Here's the key line. See how God shows that he utterly disregards what the world is, has or desires. And furthermore, that the world shows how little it knows or notices what God is, has, and does. So you're saying Christmas is all about God having an entirely different value system to us. God is born with an utter disregard for the aspirations that we naturally have. You know, no esteem, no comfort, no wealth, no kind of friendship network to introduce him to polite society. Um, you know, we, we who know Christmas shouldn't be shocked to hear Jesus say that God detests what we value highly. It shouldn't expose our hearts, and yet what we're going to see as we dig into this parable is it might just expose our hearts. It might just expose that there are things that we do, things in our heart that we're clinging to that God actually disregards. And it is good for us tonight, at the start of a new year, to have this parable reveal what God already sees is in us. It's nice for him to bring it open and into the light for our benefit. 
God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, he first said those words to the Pharisees who sneered at his teaching. Um, they, they're sneering for all sorts of reasons. Um, they're sneering because they think they already know how to deal with other people. They, they think they've already got money under control that, you know, it's serving them rather than them serving it. They, they think they're pleasing God. It speaks of um, that they're justified themselves. They don't think they're perfect people. They're just, they're on the right side of the scale. And their values actually reflect this passing world. And they refuse to let Jesus' teaching reveal and change their hearts. They sneer at Jesus, and we're told this as a warning. We mustn't sneer as Jesus speaks the story of the shrewd manager. Um, one uh, commentator calls this the most difficult parable of Jesus to understand. So buckle up. Um, key idea to unlock it, God values what the world detests. God values what the world detests. Uh, of course, um, parables, uh, we, we listen to parables. Parables are short stories, big ideas, stories brief. The idea is revolutionary. They're not straightforward. They're not meant to be simple. They're meant, to, they're designed to harden the hearts of those who aren't interested in God, you know, confirm them in their unbelief. But for those who have a desire for God, it's, it's designed to draw us in, to make us think, to make us engage with Jesus. That's what he's doing with us tonight. And we listen knowing that this is a message for us all. It doesn't matter how you come tonight. So in verse 1, it's told to his disciples, not just the 12 um, disciples, anyone who shifted from just kind of an interested onlooker to being an active follower of Jesus. It's a story for us here and now who want to follow him. But he teaches to a broader group as they listen in. He knows they're there. Verse 14, they, they listen and sneer. And in verse 15, he speaks a direct word. It means it's, this word has always been for onlookers as much as the signed up follower. That is, no matter how you've come tonight, whether you're already Jesus' disciple or just checking him out, Jesus is speaking to you that you might be shown his heart and have your own heart revealed. God values what the world detests. He disregards what the world is, has or desires. Let's look at this subversive story of a shrewd manager. Uh, verse 1. A rich man hears accusations of wastefulness against his manager. Uh, it's the same word for waste uh, used in chapter 15, verse 13 to describe the prodigal son's reckless living. You might know his story. He, he demands from his father that inheritance and goes and blows it all wastefully. Um, that, this waste might not be illegal. It, it might be the case that in this story, he's just a poor manager. He might have just been lending to businesses that are unlikely to, to ever repay. He just would be really bad at his job. Or it might be that he has been skimming profit off the top for his own pleasure. We're not told whether his waste is illegal or it's just incompetent. But either way, verse 3 and 4, where his response to being called to account suggests there's a little bit of truth in the accusations. Um, he has been entrusted with lots and he has squandered it, wasted it. And in verse 3 and 4, he's lazy and makes excuses for why he's not able to do manual labour and he's proud and he justifies why he's unwilling to beg and he's also shrewd. So he shifts from trusting in wealth to trusting in people or relationships. So verse 4 he hatches a plan that he'll be welcomed by others when he's kicked out. And Jesus gives us two examples in the story, but in verse 5, um, the each one implies that it's a trick that's repeated with every debtor, many, many more debtors. He just doesn't make the story too long. Um, verse 5 and 6, we see what does he do? First, he halves the first debt. Uh, the original debt uh, was over three times an average worker's salary, their yearly income. Uh, last year, 
uh, the median Australian salary was almost $70,000. And so he writes off $120,000. And the next debt's worth three times as much, nine and a half years' pay, over $650,000, 20% removed, over $130,000 gone with that stroke of a pen. And the master sees, verse 8, and commends his shrewdness. Now, for us, in English, shrewdness has this kind of negative overtone. Describing someone as shrewd, it's kind of, you know, they're a bit morally shady. Um, the original doesn't have that. It, it, the original could just as easily be prudence. Um, and in our culture, in, in ours, prudent is actually a, a positive thing. If you're prudent with your money, you're, you're what? Um, the master commends the manager for acting cleverly. He doesn't commend dishonesty, he commends him for operating shrewdly, prudently, using what's at his disposal to achieve his goals. Now, commending the manager at all is a little uncomfortable. Uh, and that's why a lot of people don't love this particular parable of Jesus. It's tempting to kind of soften the edges. Um, there are some who, who want to go, oh, let, let's just assume that, that the manager was slashing the debt of bad customers. Actually, he's now learnt good business practice and, and it's better to get something back than nothing. And, and let's just soften it a bit. Or, or um, that this manager has um, slashed his own exorbitant commission and actually isn't touching the master's debt, he's just kind of cutting what, what he was going to take out of it. Um, but I'd suggest if uh, he was charging 100000 commission on every debt, he's not going to be in danger of homelessness when he's sacked. Um, that's not what's going on. It's tempting because we're uncomfortable that Jesus would hold up a crook as a model for disciples. And yet Jesus often tells parables that are subversive. Um, you know, the sower, if you know that story, the sower is a bad farmer. He, he wastefully scatters good seed on three kinds of bad soil. Uh, the, the, the widow who finds her lost coin then goes and spends more than its value in celebration. That's not good and sensible management. We actually, he tells uncomfortable stories that we sit in the discomfort and wrestle a little. See, he's constantly subverting. He's drawing us in, exposing our hearts, revealing the values that we love and God detests. And, and Jesus very intentionally leaves the story unresolved, and that's uncomfortable. It hints that this guy is wasteful and you can get away with it. That this manager looks to land on his feet and it kind of prods that older value, uh, older brother value in us that, you know, the bad are, uh, you know, are getting, getting what they deserve. Where is that? Where's the justice, so to speak, our desire for simplistic justice? Uh, but building on our discomfort, um, Jesus fleshes out three particular ways where God values what the world detests. And each value is expressed in uh, some way with our attitude to money. But in each, uh, money is the symptom. Because nothing shows your real values better than your bank account. If I, if I want to know what you really love, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to find out as much if you tell me as if you just show me your bank account and your bank statement and where you spent. That is, you know, Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be. If I follow the money, I will know what you love. And God's three values that expose us. First, God values the eternal over the now. Uh, picks up the lesson, eight verse, uh, verse 8b. Um, second half of verse 8. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So it's conjuring people of the world, people who, who don't claim to trust in God, and people of children of the light, his disciples. And Jesus praises the unbelievers for their consistency. 
They know how to deal well. They, they use their money to make this life go as well as possible. They are consistent in dealing with other unbelievers because they've got the common aim of using wealth to maximise this life. They're consistent with achieving goals here and now, earning and investing and spending as though 80, 90 years, that's all you've got. Unbelievers are good at using money for pleasure now, you know, from, from holiday trips to the satisfaction of giving to charity. They're, they're good at spending uh, for security now, you know, uh, you know, saving for the house, investing in children's education. They're, they're good at applying wealth to reputation now, you know, buying you know, the right clothes and house and car to communicate their values to those around. Like the manager, they, they, they're prudent, they're shrewd, they relate to others and use their wealth consistent with their end goal. This is what they want to get and they spend accordingly. Children of the light, of course, know, you know, now's not the end. You know, this, this is not what we're aiming for. Verse 9, it's the eternal dwelling that God values and we know is there. And, and in that line, in verse 9, that eternal dwelling, you know, that truth um, exposes what God detests, first of all, in the unbeliever. You know, if you are here tonight and if you are living for what will not last, however well you do it, it is a waste. You know, if you're living for just this life, you are squandering your soul, you, you've no place in God's eternal home, uh, and God detests that waste. But at the same time, what he's doing is exposing something in us who believe. You know, our lack of prudence, our lack of consistency. Uh, children of the light have not learnt that lesson of shrewdness, of consistency from the manager. We're not as good at relating to others and using our wealth consistent with the end goal of eternity. Um, he's poking at the way that we are inclined to use our wealth to create pleasure now and security now and reputation now as though we're part of the world. Um, J.C. Ryle advises from this verse, use your money with an eye to the future as the steward did his. Spend your money in such a way that your expenditure shall be a friend to you, not a witness against you. Now, what the bank account, what those transfers, what they reveal. For God values the eternal over the now, and he condemns the, the consistency of people of this world and the inconsistency of children of the light. You know, God's values captured beautifully in a prayer. I've been praying um, this Puritan prayer uh, of contentment during this week as I've been preparing this. And there's a, it's a particular request for grace that we should have. As, as if we feel that all our values are exposed, we need his help. Um, and a little bit of that prayer is going to appear on the screen. Um, I'll talk us through it. Uh, Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty. In other words, if I don't get any of the things now, make my heart prize thy love know it, be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. May my, may my real treasure be your love, and may that hold me, constrain me, because it is thy mercy to afflict me with, try me with wants. You know, hardships, the difficulties now are a gift from you, because by these trials I see my sins, my heart, my values are exposed, and desire severance from them, to be cut off from them, to be changed. See, that is, that, that's the request that says, I want eternity, I want to live consistent with the great ultimate goal rather than the instant passing goal and you can only pray that as a child of light who wants to live consistent with the heart of God only when it's been exposed only when his grace steps in um, that's the first value second value God values others over self um, Jesus point in verse 9 is one that everyone would agree with in principle you know use wealth in service of relationships 
Uh, he puts it, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Literally, it's use the mammon of unrighteousness to gain friends or the wealth of unrighteousness to gain friends. Calling wealth unrighteous or, or worldly, it's not saying that all money is evil. It's not saying that earning money is sinful. No, it's showing that wealth is unrighteous, that it, wealth is a, a, a cause of false trust. It is a dangerous goal. Uh, Jesus elaborates a little further. You go down to verse 13, um, where money and God are rivals. Uh, money unrighteously deceives you and me to rely on it for our daily needs. You know, the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father, give us today our daily needs, rely on Him. But rather than asking our Father in heaven, we just turn to our credit card without thinking. You know, money unrighteously invites us to seek it first, and once we've got it, well, we've got a little leftover, and we can give that to others, um, rather than radically seek God's kingdom by giving to the poor, giving to gospel work, and trusting that God will underwrite our generosity. So Jesus exposes something that's deeper going on, that God values others over self. So yes, use wealth in service of relationships, but, but the story um, shows how even that can be twisted. Because uh, in the parable, some read the parable and they delight, oh, the manager seems to learn this, isn't that great? You know, it, it looks like, oh, he stopped maximising profit and he's just going to do good relationships with customers. It's certainly true. Uh, that the Bible has a whole uh, strand against maximising profit. Uh, you know, relationships have always been more important than wealth. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, there's a principle in Leviticus 23, verse 22. Don't glean to the edge of your field. Uh, the idea there, um, don't maximise your profit. Leave enough for those who are poor, the alien to collect. God has always seen wealth as a servant of relationships. It's right to value people over profit. Um, you know, in practical terms, <clears throat> money spent on having a coffee, investing in a friendship, that's good spending. But the manager has not learned that. Look at the, the story carefully. There's irony in Jesus' words when he says it. The manager has acted in a way, his shrewdness, his prudence, he's acted, acted in a way to make both wealth and relationships become self-serving rather than selfless. You know, he's only slashing the debts so that he'd get welcomed in. It's about him, not them. Christ's word, again, exposes a pattern in our heart that can twist not just wealth but relationships into selfishness. Um, you know, we might buy lunch to spend time with you know, those whose company kind of replenishes us and fills us up, but we might begrudge the same money and time spent on those who deplete us. We have a habit of twisting it. And God, God values others over self. And Jesus is telling a story to expose our hearts that disconnect between what we, we know to be right and what our heart treasures. And he does it because he gets prodding. We need God's grace. Um, it's captured beautifully a couple of chapters later. Uh, chapter 19, um, Jesus invites himself into the home of uh, a tax-collecting outcast, Zacchaeus. Uh, Inviting yourself into someone's home. I'm not going to suggest you go around doing this uh, randomly with people. Uh, but Jesus very strategically does it there. He invites himself in as a way of saying, I want to enter in and take your shame, take your rejection in order that I might save you. That's why he's inviting himself over. And Zacchaeus gets that. And actually, when he receives that kind of grace, it frees his heart to share God's values. Um, you know, if you remember the story, he's not asked to. But he gladly gives half his wealth to the poor and he repays anyone he's cheated four times over. And Jesus is still in that business of reshaping values by his grace. 
Uh, a Christian studying uh, business was given an unusual assignment uh, on negotiation. Uh, so every student was asked to make three totally unreasonable requests in the week. Uh, and this believer texted a friend from church, can you give me $5,000? Uh, and instead of replying no, her friend replied, how soon do you need it? Because it's going to take me a little bit of time to get it together. So that failed. She tried another one. Uh, a second attempt was asking another friend if she and her whole family could just move into this friend's apartment for a month. And the friend just asked, okay, what are the dates? And agreed. Um, one, one effort after another just kept you know, being unsuccessful. That is, she was deeply connected in a community that had taken God's values to heart, where you know, valuing others over self, using wealth in service of relationships, where God values others over self. Uh, the third value we see, God values single-mindedness over options. Um, as much as the manager has been prudent and shrewd, he is not changed. He's no servant, no real servant of the rich man. Uh, he was wasteful when he was employed and facing unemployment. What he does is he spreads his net um, widely as possible in the hope someone's going to welcome him in. In other words, he's going to hedge his bets. He's going to try lots of different things, hoping that you know, spreading himself around, maybe one of those things will work out instead of investing in one thing. And Jesus' judgment, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. It doesn't work to hedge your bets. Um, whether in verse 10 it's with small or a large amount, whether in verse 11 it's with passing worldly wealth or eternal riches, whether in verse 12 uh, it's with your own or others' property. No one can serve two masters. Eventually those masters will clash and you're going to have to choose. And you might not say it, but your actions will show your devotion to one and your despising of another. And what does God value? God values single-mindedness and he exposes our, our love of options. Our, our risk averseness to kind of go, I, I don't want to throw myself totally into that one error. I don't want to give myself entirely to the Lord. I want to just hold on to some areas. I want to trust in that. That might care for me. That, you know, our hearts can overlook um, you know, failures in small areas because we justify, well, the consequences don't matter. It's not a big thing. Or um, our, our hearts can excuse a lack of generosity going, well, I'll give more radically when, well, when, I, when, I, when I've got a bigger reserve, a bigger savings, or when my debt is smaller. Or um, you know, we'll hedge those bets thinking, oh, there's a difference in handling worldly and spiritual wealth. You know, if I give my, if I, if I give my time in regular ministry, well, well, then that's okay not to give to world mission. Or if I, if I put enough in, in offertory, I don't have to consider actually serving and using gifts otherwise in, in ministry outside of Sunday. You know, but God values single-mindedness over options. And Jesus is highlighting what we value, how we hold back from giving ourselves, taking the risk, plunging into God, and yet that is ultimately all that matters. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, shares a one, believer, uh, one unbeliever, an unbeliever who grasps what God values. You can see her here, but she says this. I was sitting in a coffee shop in small town Missouri. Uh, my conversation partner was a woman sporting multicoloured hair and gay pride accessories. Uh, she identified as LGBTQ, specifically pansexual. Uh, she'd had a serious girlfriend for several years and was now in a polyamorous relationship with two men. And that morning, I'd spoken on gender and sexuality at a nearby church, and some activists had organised a protest, but she'd come to hear me out. She'd asked a thoughtful question and kindly agreed to meet for a coffee to talk more. And as we chatted, she listened very carefully, 
Uh, it wasn't the message she expected. Uh, I've always experienced same-sex attraction myself, so I knew, uh, so she knew I wasn't speaking out of ignorance or prejudice. And at one point she said, and this is the key bit, at one point she said, so what I think you're saying is that people don't go to hell because they're gay, they go to hell because they haven't hidden themselves in Jesus. And I said, that's right. They hadn't hidden themselves in Jesus. God values single-mindedness. People don't go to hell because they're greedy. They go to hell because they haven't hidden themselves in Jesus. You can't serve two masters. And God knows our hearts. What, what people value highly is actually detestable in his sight. And the more we look into his story, um, perhaps tonight, the more you know, flaws in our heart are highlighted. And can I say, if, if all Jesus was doing was telling a go-fix-yourself-up story, if he was, all he was doing was saying, you, know, you, you better go and live for eternity better, you better go and love other people more, you better go and be more wholeheartedly devoted to God, he would just leave us in despair. Because that wouldn't change our hearts. Uh, as Megan said before, we need the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Um, and so uh, we, we need to finish this story by remembering a key fact. We need to remember God's own subversion, his own turning things upside down, his costly self-giving. See, this is actually a story that fits in a succession of parables. And put back together, it's a message of grace. It's hope for the dishonest. So the opening phrase of verse 1 um, is literally, and, uh, and he was saying, and he was, it connects logically, conceptually to the stories he's just been telling in verse 15. Jesus has just told the parable of the prodigal son, the, the story of one who wasted his money, who partied with friends, and when the need came, his time of need came, they were nowhere to be seen. That's the irony of 16 verse 9. You know, flowing from the prodigal son uh, and, and the way he spent his money, uh, you read 16 verse 9, you realise, oh, actually, wealth can't buy you friends. Wealth can't buy you back into the father's home. That's not how the prodigal son was welcomed back in. He didn't re-earn it. No, it, it, it's all about the failure of our best efforts. That unrighteous wealth cannot get you into an eternal dwelling. You can't give enough to poor and mission to earn a place in heaven. Not that those things don't matter. Um, the following story of the rich man shows you can't ignore the needs of others but your giving is the fruit of eternal belonging. It's not the entry fee. When you read the stories together, this is here to highlight, you need grace, I need grace, and the parable ultimately points us to grace. It is hope for the wasteful. It is hope for those who, value what God who, who don't value what God detests. And, you know, we don't have to get what we deserve. For God, the ultimate rich man, values what the world detests. Instead of him using his wealth to create friends who will welcome him in trouble, Jesus, the great rich man, left his wealth and he entered our world and he entered unnoticed and he entered unwelcomed and he, and he left riches to create a welcome, a welcome not for friends in trouble but a welcome for enemies facing um, damnation and everlasting exclusion and to bring them into eternal dwelling. Now, because he, he loves what we don't love, and that's great news. He values the wasteful, and he bears at the cross what we deserve. Now, he overcomes our vain efforts with, you know, and with his righteous wealth, he buys what our worldly wealth can't. So these stories, as much as they expose our hearts to drive us back to grace, that we might look again to the rich man who loved those who did not deserve it, for we have been so wasteful. 
And trusting that God, experiencing his love, it actually frees us to value what the world detests too. And so knowing his heart, knowing our waste, I want to finish by taking us back to that account of Luther of Christmas again. When Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised. No one noticed or was conscious of what God was doing in that stable. He lets the large houses and the costly apartments remain empty. He lets their inhabitants eat and drink and be merry, but this comfort and treasure are hidden from them. Oh, what a dark night this was for Bethlehem that was not conscious of that glorious light. But see how God shows he utterly disregards what the world is, has, or desires. And furthermore, that the world shows how little it knows or notices what God is, has, or does. He doesn't want what the world wants. Out of his love, he wants you and me. And he knows our hearts. And knowing how he's valued us, may our hearts be transformed. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you uh, that you, with all the abundance of wealth, uh, chose that your son might give it up to make us rich who do not deserve it, make us who are so wasteful, us who value things that don't last. Father, we thank you for your son's love for us, and we pray that we would grasp it a little more, that it would transform us to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.